Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that we have always the opportunity to study. Thank you, Father, for the nourishment that it provides. Thank you, Father, for the insight that it provides. Thank you, Father, for men and women who love us and gather with us because they love you. And the community of saints that you assemble by your spirit, Father, is just another reason for us to seek after you. And I, I thank you, Lord, as well, that we can lift each other up in prayer and, and consider the answers that you've provided in times past as we watch your faithfulness at work. Even in sometimes the way you say no to us, Father, we see faithful response because we know it's to our betterment that you have chosen a different path. And Lord, thank you for the, for the way that grows us. And Father, as well, as we come back into John and we consider John's careful attention to so many details in such a short period of time, we thank you for this gospel. For the world would have had three and felt completely adequate with three if we had not known better. Uh, but you knew that there was more, and so you brought it to us in this gospel. And, and we thank you, Lord, for that blessing. In the things that I may endeavor to teach, I pray that I'd handle it properly, Father, that your will would be reflected in it. And uh, where it may be off, I, I pray, Father, you would correct it, as I know you can. And in all these things, Father, I pray that you would be pleased. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we begin the study of the most momentous events in the life of Jesus, his final Passover meal, his passion, his death, and his resurrection. The first of these begins in chapter 13 and will last a full five chapters in John's gospel. That's just the Passover meal. That means almost 20% of John's entire gospel is devoted to that one moment in Jesus' life. That should tell you something about how important it was for John to tell us about what happened at this meal. But tonight, before we enter into that moment, we still have one passage at the very end of chapter 12 to complete. It is Christ's final call to the people to believe. Verse 44 of chapter 12. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life, therefore... The things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. You may remember John reported earlier in the gospel that Jesus had already gone away from the people in preparation for his death. And now we hear him crying to the people for them to believe in him while an opportunity still exists. So who's he crying out to in this case if it's already the case that he's gone away? Well, we know from the other gospels that Jesus spends the first half of the Passover week in the temple teaching. John doesn't record any of that time. In his gospel, probably because the other writers do such a good job of that. And now he is seen crying out to the people. So it would seem as though this is part of the time he spent in the temple. He reemerged in the temple to teach. And when he did so, at some point, he issued this final call to believe. So I think what you see at the end of chapter 12 is John's only attention to the time of teaching in the temple following his entry into Jerusalem. Because the very next thing we're going to see in chapter 13 is Jesus in the upper room. So he issues this final call in the way John has recorded it, verses 44 to 50. It's a small chiasm. The chiasm, for those who don't know, is a literary device 
a way in which you write, in which the progression of thought moves through a series of steps toward a point and then backs out from that point in a like number of corresponding steps. I'll show you in this case the beginning and the ending points from verses 44 and 45 compared to verses 49 and verse 50 are on the same topic, emphasizing the same point. That our response to Jesus is a response to the Father God. To believe in Jesus is to believe in God, the Father. To witness Jesus at work is to witness the Father. In fact, there can be no other way to see the Father except to see Jesus. Because as John has explained already in the first chapter of this book, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Only by seeing Jesus do you see the Father. Only through Christ can you know him. So that's up in the first half of that chiasm. The corresponding verses at the bottom, Jesus says that he spoke only as the Father directed him. He didn't speak things that were his own choosing. He spoke as the Father told him. In fact, the message that he gave was intended to bring eternal life to those who believe. So it would be especially important that Jesus would represent it accurately. The first half of the chiasm is making the connection that Jesus and the Father are one and Christ is his representative. And in the second half of the chiasm, the corresponding verses on the bottom, same idea, just a slightly different slant. Jesus speaks the Father's words. Now, the point of chiasms in literature and the reason they're used is to emphasize the point. And as they say, the point is the point where the V changes is the point of the of the chiasm. So at the beginning and at the end, Jesus emphasizes his desire to represent the Father and the Father's message of salvation. But look what's sandwiched between that message and the chiasm and what is actually the point. It's a message of judgment. In verse 46, Jesus explains that his mission in coming was to call people out of darkness and into the light of salvation. And had God wished to condemn the world for sin, well, he need not go to the trouble of delivering Jesus to the world in the first place, right? I think sometimes Christians make the mistake of assuming that fairness, in our way of seeing the word, fairness obligated God to offer mankind a chance at salvation. But that isn't so. God would have been perfectly just in condemning all men without so much as a second thought. There's nothing inherently fair about offering us something we don't deserve. So it's not the case that God had to do anything to save mankind or to be fair or good or loving that he was obligated to do so. It was an act of mercy and grace that he chose to do so. And so in mercy, he made a way available through his son. That's why Jesus says he came to rescue men from darkness. And there would have been no other reason for him to come and suffer except for that purpose. So going a step further, Jesus says that for those who hear the gospel and do not believe it, Jesus says, I'm not going to exact judgment upon them now. I didn't come to judge them, in other words. Once again, God is not obligated to wait before he brings judgment for sin. Consider with me for a moment the option that if Jesus comes and then he offers the gospel and then someone rejects it, it would have been perfectly reasonable for God to judge that person instantly in that moment so that at the moment they reject him, they fall dead. That wherever Jesus went, he leaves in his wake believers and dead people. It's ridiculous in some sense to consider that, but it would have been a perfectly legitimate thing for God, the creator and judge, to do had he chosen to do so. But you notice in an additional step of mercy, he says, I did not come with that judgment moment in mind. It awaits a later date. 
Having sent him, instead, Jesus says, I come not to bring judgment on anyone in this moment, only to bring this message of mercy. My entire mission right now is focused only on that cause. And of course, we understand why, because in the way God has played this out, even after Jesus' death and resurrection and departure, there was yet still more time for the message to circulate and for people to hear it. So God's plan in this goes beyond the moment of Jesus' first coming. That's why he didn't want to bring judgment in the moment that his son arrived. Jesus walks the earth overlooking the naysayers and the mockers and all those who persecute him. In fact, his mission couldn't have been fulfilled otherwise. Think about this. If the Lord condemned those who rejected him instantly, as I suggested a minute ago, if he had done that, then how could he have ever been put on the cross? There would have been no one left. So Jesus had to forestall judgment against the unbelievers in his first coming so as to allow them to do what the enemy is going to let them do, obviously he's going to call them to do, which is to put him to death. So his day of judgment comes, just not yet. Rest assured, judgment for rejecting Christ is coming one day. He says in verse 48, The Father has reserved a day of judgment for all those who reject his Son. That day, which Jesus calls the last day, will mark the end of mercy and of God's willingness to wait. The Lord will note in that day that the gospel reached our ears and yet we rejected it. And in that way, we will have been convicted by our unbelief. This is the unavoidable reality of grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor in the face of impending judgment. Grace isn't grace if judgment wasn't a reality. If there's no judgment, then grace has no meaning. The enemy negates God's grace, by the way, by convincing unbelievers to deny the reality of a coming judgment. When you don't feel you have anything to be saved from, you're not interested in a savior. But Jesus sets the record straight. He came to bring a message of salvation to a world that is due judgment. And whether you receive mercy or whether you receive judgment is determined by how you respond to the Father's representative. Hear Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Be saved. Reject him. You reject the Father. And in the last day, he will reject you. That sobering call sets the stage for the last night of Jesus' earthly life which begins with this Passover celebration. So it's appropriate that John would call out from among all the things Jesus says in the temple in the days before his death, he would call out this one moment, put it in a chiasm so as to focus this on the point, which is what you say about Jesus determines what happens to you. And that is the essence of the gospel. John doesn't record much of what comes in the ceremony of the Passover meal, not like the other gospel writers do, where we're going next in in chapter 13. What John does instead is focus in on the conversations that take place around the table that night. Whereas the other gospel writers, you probably know if you've studied any of the other gospels, they focus more on the ceremony and on the comings and goings. And when we look at the conversation that happens in the upper room, what a strange conversation it must have seemed to the disciples who really didn't understand what was coming, despite all that Jesus had told them. So let's begin there, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, That he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. In verse 1, you hear Jesus is meeting with the disciples before the feast of Passover. Notice that. This is where we're going to begin to piece apart the chronology of what's happening during this week. We'll do some now and some in weeks to come including looking at the actual days of the week in that calendar week and what was going on in each day of that week. For now, let's just try to focus on the Passover as it was supposed to be celebrated according to law. The Passover was to be celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, 
which is a Jewish month on the calendar corresponding roughly to mid-March to mid-April. Notice John says, though, that these men are meeting before the Feast of Passover. Luke sets this scene in a very similar fashion in Luke 22, verses 1 through 3. Luke opens this same moment saying it this way. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribe were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And as you probably know, Passover is a feast prescribed in the law for Israel to observe in commemoration of their exodus out of Egypt. The law required each family in Israel to sacrifice and then eat a lamb. The feast was to be celebrated by families in small groups of about ten people or so. And in the days preceding that feast, the family would bring that lamb that they're going to sacrifice into their home and inspect it for three days to ensure that the lamb was completely free of defects, or as the scripture says, it was spotless. Then, on the 14th day of that month, the lamb would be slain, and then the Passover meal was prescribed to be eaten on the 14th and must be complete before twilight on the 14th, on that same day, before sundown on the 14th, you have to have eaten the meal. Now, complicating our understanding of this, the Jewish way of reckoning a day designates that a new day begins at sundown, not at midnight like we do. So that means each calendar day consisted of a 12-hour period of dark followed by a 12-hour period of daylight in that order. That would be a day. Therefore, the 14th day of Nisan began, like all days, at sundown at the end of the 13th. Since the lamb was not slain during the nighttime hours, the sacrifice of the lamb on Passover must await until the daylight hours of that part of the day. So the 14th began with 12 hours of dark, followed by 12 hours of day. You're slaying the lamb in that second half in the daylight hours. Naturally, the meal must wait until you've killed the lamb. To do it any other way would be absurd. The law required that the meal be eaten before twilight on the 14th. So in the span of the 12-hour daylight hours, you were in the process then of slaying the lamb, preparing the meal, and eating the meal. And even today, traditionally, the Jews would eat the meal in the late afternoon hours before sundown on the day of 14th of Nisan. But when we look at the meal Jesus shares with the disciples, we find a different pattern. The meal is being prepared on the night before the Passover feast. John said this meal happened before the Passover feast took place. And Luke said the feast was approaching, yet not here, not here yet. And we know from all the gospel accounts that this meal is being held at night. We're going to see John mention that as well. It's being held on the night before Jesus was crucified. They are still eating the meal on the 14th of Nisan as required, but they're eating this meal on the 12-hour night period. They're not eating it during the daytime after the lamb would have been sacrificed during the daylight hours. Now, how do you explain this change? Well, first, we know Jesus dies during the daylight hours of the Passover day, that is, that second half of the day, which means he dies on the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan at 3 p.m., which is the same time that the Passover lamb was being killed by the high priest in the temple. Naturally, him going to the cross on that day precluded him from enjoying a Passover meal with his disciples following that event. So by the afternoon of the day of Passover, Jesus is dead, sacrificed for the sins of the world. And therefore, the only way Jesus could observe a Passover meal with the disciples is if he moved the meal up to the prior night, as we see happening here. So the law requires that the meal be finished before twilight on the 14th, but it places no restriction on how early you can eat the meal. 
So it could have been eaten the night before as Jesus prescribes, and you're fine. So he's celebrating the meal on the 14th of Nisan as required. He just changes the convention to accommodate his appointment with the cross. But what about the lamb? What about the lamb they ate at that table? The lamb they consumed at the Last Supper could not have been sacrificed according to the requirements of the law because in order to have a lamb ready to be eaten on that evening, it must have been killed, prepared, and roasted during the daylight hours on the 13th. Since the Passover lamb has to be killed on the 14th in the sun, that lamb could not have been considered their Passover sacrifice in observance with the law. So how did the meal that Jesus ate with the disciples satisfy the law's requirement that they eat a lamb slain on the 14th of Nisan. That's always been the sticking point in this timeline for me and probably for others. But there's a solution, as I discovered. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus interrupts the meal to take some bread and some wine, and he declares they are his body and his blood. And in doing so, he made those elements representative of his own body, which was to be slain on the 14th of Nisan as the Lamb of God. So it wasn't the roasted lamb at the table that fulfilled the Passover requirement. The lamb of that last supper was literally Jesus himself as represented in those elements. Symbolically, the lamb of the Passover was consumed in advance of his own death because that's the only way it could have happened under those circumstances. So they were fulfilling a meal requirement with a lamb that was the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. Just as Jesus told the crowd in John 6, Unless you are willing to eat his flesh and drink his blood, then you cannot be saved. Prefiguring this very moment when he would position himself as the lamb at the table. We'll return to the study of this timeline and the events that surround his death as we move further into the Gospels. For now, I just want to rejoin him and the disciples in this moment. And to throw another teaser at you, these are the waning hours of daylight on Wednesday, April 21st, A.D. 34. And we'll examine later how we know that date to be precisely the Passover night. Now, if they thought that his timing was a bit odd in putting the meal the night before the normal time, they don't say anything. We're told in the other Gospels that an upper room has been prepared for the Passover meal. The disciples find a man carrying a water pitcher. He leads them to the room. And this very cloak and dagger way, they find their way to an upper room already set with a table waiting for someone to enjoy a Passover meal. With what I have just covered... It now makes much more sense that a room could have been prepared for a Passover meal and yet be going unused on that night. Because remember, the meal is supposed to take place the next day, not on that night. So the room was prepared, though perhaps not expecting guests for another 24 hours until it was that Jesus asked for it. And the man who had it said, you're welcome to it. As the men assemble in the room, Jesus opens the scene of the meal, remarking on Jesus's amazing mindset. Notice he says Jesus knew that his death was mere hours away. We know that he knew he was dying or was about to die. We know that he also knew how he was going to die. All of those thoughts were impinging on him. But look at his focus. John says his focus remains on showing love to those who are his. Wouldn't you have understood if Jesus had been just a little distracted, a little bit on edge, knowing what was coming? But he's not. He's kind. He's calm. He's purposeful in all that he's doing at this point. And I think that leads John to this conclusion that Jesus loved them to the end. In this context, I think he's referring specifically to Jesus' willingness to enjoy this meal with these men, to serve the disciples, even in the midst of mental suffering. And it would be unimaginable to me how much burden he was carrying as he was in all of this time, trying to act as it were normal, knowing what was coming. 
And he wanted to use these last hours productively. He's going to teach them lessons. He's going to demonstrate and model things for them. And he's going to give them instructions on what to do in his absence. Even more remarkable is the way Jesus served the very one who would betray him. And that's why I included verse 2 in my opening passage. Judas was among the twelve at this Passover meal, at least as it began, in the upper room. And he won't be there at the conclusion of the meal. We've already been told that Satan had sparked in Judas a desire to betray Jesus. Judas, we've already said, is not a true disciple, just like we looked at in chapter 6. He is a devil, as Jesus called him. And yet, we know Jesus recruited him for a specific purpose. And that purpose is about to be fulfilled. He serves for us as a useful study in how the enemy works in the hearts of the world. The enemy, from Scripture, we're told, has dominion over fallen humanity as the slave master. Hebrews tells us that the enemy has enslaved sinful men through fear of death. And therefore, every unbeliever is a target for the enemy's agents to indwell, potentially, and to possess. And even before he might take that step in a particular case, he can still influence the thoughts and motives of an unbeliever, as you see him doing here. Just consider a comparable example from the book of Acts to help you understand the interplay here between the enemy and this man, Judas, who was an unbeliever. In Acts 13, we read this, verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? You see, Paul's insight through the Spirit's guidance was that this man was an agent of Satan in the moment. So knowing that the world is a playground for the enemy is important to conducting ourselves in a wise and discerning way as we deal with whatever the enemy throws our way. He has real power, but of course the Lord has infinitely greater power. Paul being filled with the Spirit was a source of power against the enemy in that moment. And at this moment in the Passover meal, you see that same hierarchy reflected. That is to say, Satan at work, striving to bring an end to his enemy, God, using unbelievers as his pawns in that battle, but the progress of the interplay is entirely dependent on the Lord's permissive will. Only what Christ permits Satan to do is going to happen, and at the end of the age, we know the Lord brings Satan to his final reckoning, but not until the Lord has used Satan in the meantime to accomplish everything he desires. Whatever is happening is playing into God's hands, though Satan doesn't understand that, of course. And that any who he is using in regards to that plan are unknowing pawns. They are victims in a sense. They're still sinful. They're not innocent. But they are being manipulated by an enemy they don't even know. As Paul says, we do not war against flesh and blood. We see past them to the true enemy. Then in verse 3, John says that despite knowing that Jesus had come from the right hand of God Almighty and that all creation had been given to him, nevertheless, he begins to serve. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from the supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So knowing all that we know about Christ and he himself knowing all that lay before him as he accomplishes his mission, 
this would be the right time, the right moment when you might expect him to feel just a little bit superior. But he lays aside his garments. That means he literally undressed himself to the point of what a slave would wear, which is to say at this point he has nothing on but girded himself with cloth so that it's wrapped around his waist for modesty's sake, but he's otherwise bare-chested and, and with nothing else on. It's the position a slave took in serving at a table. And while the disciples remain seated, he stands, another position associated with a servant. You stood if you were a servant while others sat. And remember, this table would have been on the ground as they would have laid down on the ground and reclined at the table. So that would have meant their feet are on the floor stretched out behind them. So he's crouching down. And he's washing the feet with the basin, and then he's using the very article of clothing that he's wearing to dry the feet. A very humbling, in some ways denigrating, approach to serving another person. In a proper home, when you invited people to a dinner of this magnitude, there would have been a a servant to the home's master who would have had the duty of going around and washing the feet of all the guests before the meal. You remember, these are dusty, dirty roads. You're walking in open sandals of some kind, and so your feet are naturally going to get very caked with dirt. But in this case, there's no servants in the room, just Jesus and the disciples. It's a private moment. Did you think maybe a few of the disciples maybe noticed that nobody in the house was available to perform the traditional foot washing service before the meal? If so, clearly none of them would condescend to perform that duty for the sake of their brethren. Luke records that only a few moments before this happened, these same men had just been arguing with one another over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. So it would seem that their mindset in the moment is far from serving one another. It's on the other end of the spectrum. They're too prideful to address the need, so they're just resigned to go without. No one's going to be the first to stand up and help the other in that regard. So instead, the rabbi takes it upon himself to wash the feet of all those students, and he does it as a lesson. Warren Wiersbe makes an excellent observation about Jesus' lesson of humility. He says, We today, just like the disciples that night, desperately need this lesson on humility. The church is filled with a worldly spirit of competition and criticism as believers vie with one another to see who is the greatest. We are growing in knowledge, but not in grace. As Jesus goes around the table, there's silence. Probably astonished looks and confusion, but no one's saying anything until he gets to Peter. And Peter is the first to object. Verse 6. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Peter is disturbed at the notion of Jesus washing his feet. And Jesus tries to explain kindly to him that the meaning of what he's doing escapes him now. But he'll understand it in the future. So just work with me, Peter. Jesus is doing what is a very simple physical act. But it's clear that he's on a path to teach something spiritual out of this action. So his concern is not on the cleanliness of their feet. And he's not worried about satisfying some kind of Jewish dining custom here. The main message is creating a beautiful picture, this picture created by washing their dirty feet. By Jesus' sacrificial death, he makes his disciples clean. Our dirt, if you will, is the result of a sinful walk. And that dirt is removed by Christ's sacrificial act on the cross. So it is said he washes away our sins by his blood. So he's in the moment of doing something sacrificial 
and humiliating to himself so that he can wash them. And that is picturing the spiritual act he will perform. And that's why he says, you don't understand this now, but you will soon enough. Notice Peter objects, though, still. And when he does, Jesus tells him, look, Peter, this is the only way you can be clean. So Jesus is now speaking purely on the spiritual level. Without the cleansing I do for you, and if you aren't willing to accept that cleansing, then you can't be a part of the work I'm intending to achieve. You have to be cleansed by the blood of Christ or else you'll never see the kingdom. And of course, Peter doesn't understand the spiritual dimension, just like Jesus said he wouldn't. So that's why he responds with, well, in that case, wash all of my body. Then he adds to this group that they are clean already, meaning that they have already been forgiven of their sin because of their faith in him. But it still remains, of course, for Jesus to accomplish the atoning work on the cross. But like Abraham and all the saints who came after or before, for that matter, they have been justified already by their faith in God's promises. That statement's important in this context, because if he had not said that, it could have been the case that someone would have taken the physical act to have been the literal act of cleansing. But when he says you are all already clean, then he is making clear that this physical act that he's in the midst of performing is not the source of these men's salvation. No one can argue that this washing or any other, like baptism, is required for salvation. But nevertheless, it was necessary in this moment because it was necessary to create a powerful picture that Jesus wanted to provide. So in that sense, it was required. But for their sakes, it wasn't, not in the sense of salvation. That's why he says they're already clean. But then he caveats. He says, well, not everyone in here is clean. Judas wasn't clean. And in that statement, by the way, we have probably our clearest evidence yet that Judas is not a believer. He's not saved by faith. He was an unbeliever attached to the group, brought into the inner circle so that there would be a betrayer available to do that work when the time came. Ironically, I think Peter's protest highlights the second lesson Jesus was trying to teach. The first lesson was on the spiritual picture of salvation being a source of cleansing to us. But as Peter objects, he unwittingly gives an opening for the second lesson that Jesus is trying to teach. And that is that Jesus is modeling the way his disciples must serve his followers in his absence. They are to set aside personal ambition and pride, the things that provoke the kind of thinking that says someone needs to serve me, and instead adopt a thought that I will serve others. And when you look at what Peter said, his comments sound pious, but I think if you look deeply enough, you find them to be nothing more than pride. He wants to be seen in this group as one of the disciples humble enough to reject Jesus' gesture. Peter was proud of his humility. And as Shakespeare writes, he doth protest too much. His protest sounds hollow. Peter spoke up because it would be an opportunity for him to stand out from his peers. He's done that in other times. He wants his protest to reflect credit upon himself. His primary interest wasn't Jesus's honor. It was his. So Jesus reinforces the second purpose in his washing by emphasizing the model of a disciple. Verse 12, he says, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, 
so then when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. So now the lesson truly begins. And he begins by asking them, do you understand what I've done here? There's no evidence in the text that any of them tried to answer. I expect they weren't going to. And so Jesus moves directly into answering it for them. He says, you acknowledge me as teacher and as Lord. That's good or that's correct. These titles are accurate. I have the right to be called these things. You have a reason to use them when addressing me. But those titles make sense only for Jesus. They're not badges of honor. They're not things that we aspire to gain for ourselves. As the saying goes, there is a God and you are not him. So then Jesus asks them to consider what would it mean then if their Lord and teacher humbles himself to wash their feet? Clearly, if the Lord is not above performing such acts of selflessness and sacrifice, then none of the disciples can be said to be above it either. And as Jesus says, a slave is not greater than his master. So the lesson for Peter and for the rest of them is emulate my attitude and my actions and how you serve the church. And then he adds that knowing that principle is not enough. The disciples have to put it into action. Notice in verse 17, he says, they will be blessed by God when they do what he did. I know a lot of people who are students of the Bible who are smart enough to see the need for sacrificial service in the body of Christ. They understand that's an imperative, but it's only those who make a practice of it in their lives that will receive God's blessing. James says, be doers of the word, not just hearers. Once again, Jesus makes a distinction, adding that he is not speaking equally to everyone. Once again, Judas is not included in this. Jesus knew that what he was speaking simply wasn't being received by Judas. Judas's ears were in the room and he's hearing these words, but they are words to believers. And therefore, as an unbeliever, they're not penetrating his heart. They're not resonating. Jesus says he knew who he had chosen. What does it mean that he knew he had chosen? All 12 men have been chosen in the sense that he put them all in the group of 12. And yet now you see him saying there is another level of choosing that has been done within the 12. Do you see that? Speaking of the 11, we see even clearer evidence here that it is God's choosing that brings men to be born again, because that's the distinction being made here. Judas was not chosen for salvation. He was part of the group so that scripture would be fulfilled, that it was to be someone close to the Messiah who would ultimately betray him. Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, verse nine, which says in prophecy that it would be someone who was close to the Lord, who ate bread from his table, who would also betray him. And that makes sense. There had to be a betrayer among the twelve. So since so many important and unexpected things are about to happen in the next 36 hours, Jesus tells the disciples from this point forward, I'm going to tell you in advance everything that's going to happen so that as these things come back to your mind in the days and the weeks that are going to follow, you'll have reason to ponder their meaning. And then when the Lord dies at the hands of his enemies, you will have some way to make sense of that outcome. They are going to be tempted in the moment to conclude that Jesus wasn't truly God or that he wasn't as powerful as God or God isn't capable of defeating every enemy. Or they're going to have question after question about who they were following all these years and what it means that he couldn't survive. On the other hand, if Jesus tells you everything that's going to happen to him in advance, you'll have reason to reconsider the meaning because it's going to become clear Jesus intended for these things to happen. In fact, he said things like, I have to die. And he's going to say how he's going to die. And clearly, if he knew all those things in advance, he could have stopped them. He could have avoided them. He could have run away. And yet he allowed them to continue despite knowing they were coming. That begins to tell us there was purpose in it because Jesus said that it would happen and went through with it. 
so that when they go out as his representatives, they're in a position to convince others of the truth of his claims in the face of what will undoubtedly be objections like if he was God, why did he die? How come he couldn't even beat the Romans? So their success depends on an appreciation of all of these details, but also remaining dependent on the Lord to work through them. Notice in verse 20, the Lord says those who would receive Jesus will likewise receive the ambassadors that he sends, the servants that he sends. When you and I have been born again by the spirit, we join a family of believers and that family knows its own and receives its own. Like any other family, we may not always like one another, but we're always going to love one another. In the spiritual sense, there's an affinity, there's an acceptance that we are in the same family. Having referred to Judas and his purpose on several occasions, now John turns to the moment when the traitor does his job and is then dismissed from the rest of the gathering. Verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us, who is it of whom he is speaking? He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. So Judas is being removed at the meal at this point. And the reason it happens here early in the meal is because what's about to follow is only appropriate for those who are truly Christ's disciples at this point forward in the meal. All the conversation, all the intimacy that's about to follow, it's only for the disciples that truly know Christ. Jesus, as we see it opening here in verse 21, he's fearful again of his coming death, troubled in the spirit, because he's about to put in motion the wheels that eventually bring about his painful death. In keeping with his promise of a moment ago, he tells them in advance who the betrayer would be and that this betrayer would be responsible for turning him in. Actually, they were greatly perplexed, we're told. They can't understand how this would happen. They try to guess who it could be. They have no idea who it could be. You know, that detail in itself is so surprising. We know Judas is a devil. Jesus called him that. John said earlier he's been stealing money from the money box. He's an unbeliever. He's an unbeliever among men who know and love the Lord. And yet no one suspects him. No one has a clue to think, oh, it's got to be that Judas guy. I always wondered about him. It's a sobering reminder that we can be surrounded by men and women who play the part well, but have nothing in their hearts. The gospel isn't a way of life to be adopted. It isn't a way of thinking that we argue ourselves into. It's a spiritual rebirth that God alone accomplishes in the heart of his children, prompted by the hearing of God's word and consummated by the work of the spirit. And unless that has happened, there is all the difference in eternity between the believer and the unbeliever. No matter how much the unbeliever may adopt the practices of a faith, external practices, and mimic them, which is all that we've seen Judas do. This is the first time you notice that John refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. That's a turn of phrase by John. But it's important to understand John is not suggesting that he was Jesus' favorite. 
nor is he suggesting that Jesus loved him more than the rest of the disciples. It's a statement of God's grace spoken in humility, actually. John is emphasizing that it was Jesus's love for him that was the foundation for his relationship with Jesus. And of course, the same thing could be said about every one of the disciples. So it's ironic, really. John chose to refer to himself in this way rather than to refer to himself by name or in the first person, not as a source of pride, but rather to diminish himself while emphasizing Christ's love for him. So it's a humble way of referring to himself. And he says he's next to him, leaning into him. Traditionally, in the Passover table was arranged so that the most honored person of the table was at one end of the table. And then the one seated immediately to the left of that person would be the next highest in honor. And as you proceed around that side of the table and up the back side and back around the next side, you had a diminishing order of honor, everyone seated around that table. There was only one exception to this rule. The youngest was positioned immediately to the right of the most honored person. It was a position intended to preserve the youngest from always having to be at the end of the action at the very end of the table and made the younger one a more active participant in the meal because the the one who was most honored would run the meal and quite often encourage the youngest one to be involved in some of the ceremony. So men would recline at a table leaning on their left elbow and their head sometimes propped up on their left hand and they would have their right hand free to get the food off the table and put it into their mouth. And so when you lean on your left side, you're naturally positioned at an angle where your head at the table, your feet pointed out away from the table, you're in a fan like this around the table. Well, because of that, the person who is on your right will be leaning up against your chest. So when John says that he was leaning into the bosom of Christ, it tells us he was on Christ's right, and we know Christ would have been in the most honored position, so it tells us John was the youngest at the table, which would dovetail with the fact that John lived the longest of all of the disciples. So John, being the youngest, is seated to the right, his head practically touching Jesus' right shoulder as he is leaning back. And if he had leaned back to have a conversation with Jesus in that awkward position, it would have been even more the case that he would have leaned over like this and been pressing up against him practically. Peter, given what we just see happening here, must have been seated some distance from Jesus because he's asking someone to help him reach out to Jesus and get an answer that he needs, probably on the opposite side of the table. If so, then Peter has assumed a position of some humility at the table, seating himself a distance from Jesus. But going back to what we just learned a minute ago, is he being humble or simply proud of his humility? Is he sitting there because he believes it or because it's for effect? But in any event, as they have this conversation, they've heard Jesus make this provocative statement. Peter wants John to solicit more information from Jesus. So they gestures, it says here specifically, he gestures to John. You almost wonder if maybe it was just a private moment between Peter and John. Hey, hey, ask him for me. And then John relays that request to Jesus because he's the next to him. And to fulfill scripture, Jesus declares that the one who would eat the morsel he dips is the betrayer in keeping with Psalms, as we read earlier. Now, Jesus may have spoken that response softly enough so that only John next to him and Judas to the other side of him would have heard it. If Jesus could reach Judas with the morsel directly, then it would mean that the only other position left is that Judas is on the immediate left of Jesus, which would have been the most honored position after Jesus himself. Another irony and an indication of Judas's pride and self-deceit. You might have also concluded that Jesus offered this seat to Judas intentionally just for this very moment. As the saying goes, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. John records that as Jesus goes through this process and hands the morsel to Judas, probably again to his left, John says at this moment, Satan entered Judas. 
The word entered indicates the indwelling, the physical indwelling of Jesus' body by the enemy himself. This shows us how strongly Satan took interest in the destruction of the Messiah. He normally uses his agents to indwell and direct the bodies of unbelievers from time to time, including still today. But it's a rare event, at least according to Scripture, when you see Satan himself stepping in to do the work. He does it here. He does it later in the life of the Antichrist to come. But we don't know of any other specific case in which he takes direct action. Even in the case of Job, famously, Satan asking for the chance to do things. We don't know that it was Satan himself who carried out the work. could have been through demons. In any case, he does it here. Matthew records that Judas reacts with surprise to learn that he is the one who is going to betray Christ. Now, perhaps he's just feigning surprise to cover his tracks, or perhaps his role as betrayer wasn't fully formed in his heart, even at this point, and that it required the indwelling of Satan to bring him to that point. The more we consider the interplay between Judas and the enemy, the more revealing it becomes. We know that Judas takes his own life after Jesus dies, which would suggest that he felt some regret at his actions. But remember, regret is not the same thing as repentance. Those actions are not the same thing as saying he had saving faith. We're just saying that in the normal course of human events, bad people can do bad things and still feel guilt over them later. That's not unusual. Furthermore, we might conclude that without Satan's direct influence, he might not have gone through with the plan. He might have started and not finished. Who's to say if a man could have regret that he wouldn't have had it earlier in the process and thwarted the whole plan of God? So when you take all of these things into account, I arrive at the conclusion that Judas was placed in Jesus's inner circle as a pawn available to Satan. Judas was an unbeliever living in the flesh, not chosen by God to receive salvation so that he would remain in his fallen state. And as such, he followed Jesus as far as flesh can follow God. He was drawn in by the notoriety of Jesus. He was flattered to be chosen. He remained committed for as long as it benefited him. Uh, He stole a little money along the way. And generally, he understood Jesus' ministry to be an opportunity to get in on the ground floor of something new and something exciting, perhaps the next government, the next king. But because he was without the Spirit of God, he's an empty vessel, spiritually speaking. Like every unbeliever, that means he's an asset controlled by Satan. And Jesus included Judas in the group, knowing that Judas would have been the only one within that inner circle who was even available for Satan to do what he wanted to do. Remember when Jesus taught on demon possession at a point elsewhere in the Gospels, he states that unless a person is under the control of the Spirit of God, he remains forever available to the enemy. He says this in Luke 11:24, using an analogy. He says, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Jesus taught this to emphasize that though he came with physical healing, with the ability to cast out demons, that that was not the extent of his ministry. In fact, it served no long-term purpose to cast demons out everywhere if that wasn't followed by the knowledge of God so that there could be something taking residence in us spiritually and thereby forever prohibiting the enemy from having a chance at us again. And so being born again is a one-time forever change through the Spirit of God that puts us off limits from the enemy. So this is one of the passages you would turn to as proof that a believer cannot be indwelled by the enemy. How do we see Judas then? 
He was an unbeliever, susceptible to Satan's deceptions and authority. He was positioned by God, by Christ, so that God's plan could be accomplished. The Lord is never the author of sin, but he knows how to put sin to work to accomplish his good purposes. In this case, Jesus put the work of Satan's desire to destroy the Messiah and Judas's desire to enhance his pocketbook and ego to work for his own sake, to be an instrument to put him to the cross. As, as Jesus says, a dog returns to his vomit. Judas was going to be Judas. Satan was going to be Satan. Jesus didn't have to make them sinful or plant ideas in their head. He just had to let them do as their nature directed. What Jesus did was orchestrate the opportunity so that they were there at the right time in the right place. We can conclude Judas was not innocent, but nor was he the mastermind or even really an agent of Jesus's betrayal. The blame always traces to Satan and his antics pollute everyone he touches, including Judas. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2:14, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. If you're a slave, you have a master. Before you know the Lord as master, the enemy is your master. Finally, Jesus tells Judas to do what he's about to do and do it with haste. I think he was speaking to Satan. I believe at that point Jesus knew he was speaking to a man indwelled by Satan, and he speaks to Satan directly in that regard. Now, as he speaks those words, we're told the disciples are confused at Judas's departure. Now, either this is the most dense 11 men you'll ever meet on earth because of all that's been said and done. You would think they could put two and two together. I don't think that that's the case. Not at all. I think it is a supernatural act. Imagine what would have happened in this moment if one or more of these disciples had known that Judas was leaving to betray the Lord. Wouldn't they have tried to stop him? Once again, I think you see the Lord orchestrating events, even down to the detail here, of not allowing the disciples to appreciate in that moment what was going on. Yet, of course, giving them memories of it later so that we can see it. You have to marvel at Jesus' obedience here again, knowing he could have stopped the plan simply by skipping over one of these little details. He had to make sure nothing got in the way of this plan that he was putting himself on the cross. The disciples to themselves tried to explain the departure as an errand. They think, oh, he's just going out to get things to prepare for the feast. That's an important detail because that's further evidence that this meal was not happening at the normal Passover time. The normal Passover feast was going to take place the next day on in the afternoon. So the disciples think Judas is going out to make a purchase for the next day's meals. And it would make sense if he's the guy holding all the funds. They thought maybe that's why he would be the one sent. If this had been the proper normal Passover meal time, they never would have made that assumption. It would be like sending someone away from the Christmas meal dinner table to go get a turkey. You're already there. You don't need anything now at this point. But they're still looking forward to the feast that they're planning to have the next day. They're not perceiving this meal to be the true fulfillment of the feast. It's off schedule for them. Last thing John says at the end of verses I read, he says it's night. That's important for two reasons. First, it confirms our timeline. This meal is taking place on the 14th of Nisan after nightfall. And so it's taking place too early to be the normal Passover meal because there have not been any lambs sacrificed in Israel yet. Not a single one could have been because nothing sacrificed at night in the temple in that way. And you can't sacrifice it in the daytime because that would have been the 13th. 
So that tells us that what's happening here is unorthodox. It's not the normal Passover meal. This is important because if you ever if you ever do go look at some of the commentary that try to reconcile the Gospels as it comes to this event, there's a lot of confusion and debate and a lot of people left thinking there's mistakes because when you try to line them all up, it makes it look as though this meal can't happen at this time and still qualify as a Passover meal for all the reasons we just said. But you can address those objections by understanding that this is not intended to be the norm. Jesus has moved it out of its normal place because he has to for his own sake, but then he has still met the terms of the law in putting himself in the place of the lamb. And then when he is sacrificed the next day, it's fulfilled. He is being sacrificed on the right day and he is the lamb of God. Spiritually, they eat of his flesh and blood through symbols because there's no other way. But that satisfies God for the purpose that that event serves. That is to picture Christ. So he's the fulfillment of it. So the first thing you notice here is that the night reference helps our timeline conclusion. Secondly, though, it's one of John's classic devices to represent spiritual power. Darkness is a picture of the enemy and of sin and of death. And so as Judas leaves the gathering to put in motion Jesus's death, the world enters a period of darkness, spiritually and otherwise. For a time, the father is going to put his son literally into the hands of this enemy and his agents And for a time, the order of creation is going to be flipped, in a sense. The enemy takes the life of God, so to speak. The Lord will subject himself to the evil schemes of Satan, and darkness falls upon the world. But in three days, that darkness will be defeated. To end tonight, I thought I'd read out of Philippians, because I thought Paul's famous passage in Philippians 2 is so appropriate as you consider the nightfall of these hours. Philippians 2.5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Heavenly Lord, thank you, Father, for the reminders tonight of what it took for Christ to save us from our sin, to wash us clean. As servants, Father, let us do the same to one another, to to humble ourselves and to sacrifice our concerns for the needs of others so that we may serve and please you. And as you say, be blessed for having done what we've learned. And Lord, I pray we'd come back in the weeks to come and see much more of this story. Let it finish, Father. We, we've just begun what is the climax of this story, the part in which our salvation is won on the cross. We'd like to see that play out as you presented it. And learn as much as we can. We pray for that opportunity and for others to join us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.